Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now for today's episode. Free State or Fair State? Ireland after independence. Over the last few weeks, there has been a lot of events on in Ireland to mark the centenary of the 1916 Rising. The Rising was the first step on Ireland's road to independence, so I thought it would be worth looking at what life was like after independence. As the title suggests, I'm going to question how free and fair independent Ireland was in the 1920s. That said, I would like to state from the outset, before lots of you start emailing me angry messages, This is not an attempt to question the merits of the War of Independence, something I think was a positive event, but more to question whether Ireland lived up to the dreams and hopes of our revolutionary ancestors. One final thing I would say before I begin is that this show is probably not suitable for younger listeners. There are references to sex in the second half of the show. Scarcely was there another generation born in Ireland with greater hopes and aspirations than those who lived through the revolutionary period of 1913 to 1921. It's hard to reflect back on those times from today and have any sense of what it must have been like. Life was hard, poverty was rampant and many people were marginalised in society. But it was a time where change seemed to be imminent. And it wasn't just for those campaigning for an independent Ireland. Aspirations of workers up and down the island were rising. They were joining trade unions, demanding increased wages and better conditions. Meanwhile, women were fighting for equality in an Ireland where they were treated as second-class citizens, unable to vote or take a full active role in society. Things were changing, though. In this context, it's clear not only Republicans but many others had high hopes about what an independent Ireland would be like. As Ireland neared independence, such hopes only increased. In 1918, for example, Constance Markovitch became the first ever woman elected to the British House of Commons, taking a seat in Dublin. Then, in 1919, the War of Independence broke out. While the IRA focused its energies on attacking the British Army, Trade unionism and workers' militancy soared, with organised workers playing a prominent role in the War of Independence. 
1920 alone, there were over 200 strikes, the most important of which was the munitions strike, where transport unions refused to carry war supplies or soldiers for the British Army. These were heady days. People could now envisage, even taste a different and better world. After independence, they would all want to see their hopes realised. However, these hopes of women and workers collided with the views of what other people wanted from an independent Ireland. And within months of the end of the War of Independence, many hopes began to sour. The War of Independence had been brought to an end by a controversial treaty between the Irish Republican movement and the British government. The six counties that today form Northern Ireland were to remain part of the United Kingdom, something many Republicans were deeply unhappy about. Indeed, when Republican politicians met to discuss the treaty in the Doyle or Irish Parliament, it was only passed by a margin of 56 to 48. Worse still, immediately the Republican movement split, with Eamon de Valera, the President, resigning and walking out over the vote. He was followed by several other prominent figures, such as Constance Markovich, Harry Boland and Cahill Brewer. Nevertheless, Michael Collins, Arthur Griffith, W.T. Cosgrave and Kevin O'Higgins, amongst others, pressed on with the business of accepting the treaty and setting up what was called the Irish Free State in the 26 southern counties. However, in the coming months, tensions began to build between the two factions. In March 1922, the IRA met in convention and resoundedly rejected the treaty. The Irish Free State government, in response, founded what was called the National Army, their own armed force. While there were minor clashes in the early months of that year, in June 1922, a civil war broke out. This conflict had a huge bearing on the future of the Free State. Short as it was, it was over within nine months. The war was ferocious, laced with massacres. Within weeks, it was obvious that the pro-treaty Free State government forces were going to emerge victorious. Within a month, the anti-treaty IRA forces had been decisively defeated in Dublin, while Cork City was captured on August 10th. However, instead of trying to de-escalate or wind down the conflict that they were clearly winning, the government politicians demanded an absolute annihilation of their former comrades in the anti-treaty IRA. Indeed, they would go on to break the Hague Convention of 1907, the era's equivalent of the Geneva Convention, on numerous occasions. For example, during the second half of 1922, the Free State Army made several naval landings into Munster where the IRA remained strongest. In a ruthless campaign, prisoners were executed, but this was an activity condoned by Patrick Hogan, the Free State Minister for Land and Agriculture, who gave a nod and a wink to such behaviour when he said that the National Army are a little too ready to take prisoners. It is hard to pinpoint where this authoritarian attitude came from. Perhaps these men had been hardened by their experiences during the War of Independence, or maybe the clandestine hierarchical nature of the Republican and Nationalist movements over previous decades imbued some of these people with little more than a passing respect for democracy. Whatever the root cause, the anti-treaty IRA seemed as willing to use as brutal methods as the Free State were. Before the war came to an end, the elderly father of the Free State Minister for Justice, Kevin O'Higgins, was executed in what was little more than a revenge killing. In March 1923, 
as the war reached an endgame, the government forces committed two major atrocities at Ballysidi and Countess Bridge in County Kerry, where prisoners were strapped to landmines, which were then detonated. Around two months later, the war finally ended when the IRA decided to dump its weapons. Now much has been made of this dark chapter in Irish history. Some have said the government had little choice given the threat they faced from the IRA. While you have to make up your own mind on that, I think there is little doubt that the authoritarian policy and the ruthless attitude to dissent that the free state government displayed during these years permeated its way through society and the government retained a similar attitude when dealing with civilians and political problems. This did not bode well for the future and in particular some of those people who had held out high hopes for what an independent Ireland might be like. By 1923, the government of the Irish Free State were undisputed masters of the 26 southern counties of Ireland, having utterly annihilated what they regarded as the enemy within, the IRA. The next major task was one of rebuilding the country after nearly four years of conflict between the War of Independence and the Civil War. To this end, by April 1923, the governing faction who had supported the treaty reorganised themselves into a political party, Common Naguel, meaning the party of the Irish. Supposedly, this new party was designed to transcend the politics of the War of Independence and appeal to all sections of society, including unionists who had been opposed to independence, and give them a vehicle to adapt to life in the Free State. Theoretically, undoubtedly, this was a good idea. However, Commonwealth had a very specific vision of society that was far from inclusive. Highly conservative and traditionalist, in outlook, they wanted to roll back on the social radicalism of Ireland's revolutionary period and re-establish the old economic and social order as best they could. Women were to lose rights and workers' demands for better conditions and increased wages would not be tolerated. Indeed, Kevin O'Higgins, the first Minister for Justice for the Free State, famously quipped that he and his colleagues in Commonwealth were the most conservative-minded revolutionaries that ever put through a successful revolution. This conservative revolution was deeply painful, particularly for the poor and women for whom the new free state was most definitely not a fair state. This was made explicitly clear as early as September 1922 when they cut the pay of postal workers. Given trade unionism had soared during the War of Independence, this quickly led to a strike of 10,000 workers. In what was a rude awakening for many, the Free State Government was ruthless in the way it dealt with the strikers. The army, supported by armed guards, attacked pickets and the strike was in effect banned. This was indicative of how they would treat dissent in the coming years. In 1923, conflict was brewing in rural Ireland as large farmers began to campaign to drive down the wages of agricultural labourers. These labourers, who formed around 23% of the rural workforce, like many others during the revolutionary period, had been trying to improve their conditions by joining the ITGWU, the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union. In 1923, though, the farmers, emboldened by the knowledge that the Free State Government would support them, locked out thousands of these unionised labourers in an attempt to drive their wages down. Locking out workers is a tactic where employers refuse to allow their employees back to work until they accept certain demands. 
The government were by no means neutral, but instead used the army against the workers. Indeed, in Athai, County Kildare, when farmers locked out 350 labourers, numerous trade unionists were arrested and held without trial for three months. Later, in 1923, when 1,500 labourers were locked out in Waterford, they met a similar response. The state sent in 600 soldiers and the entire of East Waterford was put under a curfew between the hours of 11pm and 5.30am. Meanwhile, little was done to stop the activities of white guards, vigilantes organised by farmers to attack union organisers. Unsurprisingly, the farmers, backed by the army, emerged victorious and crushed the union, something that had a terrible cost for rural life in Ireland. Defeated and unorganised, the living standards of the rural poor plummeted. The wages of agricultural labourers fell by 10% between 1922 and 1926, and then another 10% in the following five years. These policies forced many into emigration. Little wonder, given their income had fallen by nearly 20% between 1923 and 1931. While this callous attitude to the rural poor seemed brutal, it was matched by a lethal indifference when it came to the urban poor. One of the greatest problems facing Ireland in the 1920s was the plight of the urban poor. A legacy of the rule, or perhaps misrule, of the British Empire was the horrific slums in Dublin, which were among the worst housing in Western Europe. Thousands lived in crushing poverty and filthy conditions. However, in the early years of the Free State, the government did little or nothing to help those stuck in what was overcrowded, squalid conditions. They largely privatised the construction of housing and the desperation in which people lived simply continued. No private builder was going to build houses for a people who were too poor to buy one. The costs of this policy were tragic. In 1926, when a census was conducted, over one-third of the population of Dublin still lived in housing conditions with an average of four people per room. Infant mortality rates reached 12% among children under one in urban areas. That's about one in eight of these infants dying. While we cannot ignore the fact that Ireland was struggling in what was an economic recession in these years, the government's taxation policy was specifically designed to benefit the better off in society. Income tax was reduced from 27% to 15% and instead taxes were levied on goods and services. These type of indirect taxes have a much greater impact on the poor given that they don't factor in people's ability to pay. While it became abundantly clear that Common Nguyen cared little about the poor in society, many of whom had harboured hopes in independence, perhaps the most savage social policy was the one they adopted towards women. Over their ten years in power, between 1922 and 1932, Common Nguyen started a process that would see women effectively forced from public life in Irish society, something that was linked to their relationship with the Catholic Church. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. After independence in 1922, the Catholic Church was arguably the most powerful institution in Ireland, even more powerful than the new free state itself. It was clear that the Church would have a strong influence, but few could have predicted how great this influence would be. After the Civil War, Cumann and Gael were in no position, but more importantly had no inclination to stand up to the Church and its views on how society should be run. Indeed, the opposite was true. The Catholic Church had been a key influence on Irish society since the Great Famine of the 1840s, so Republican and Nationalist politicians of all hues were inculcated with its moral and cultural attitudes. Indeed, this was so much the case that in the early years, Cumann and Gael seriously pondered making Ireland officially a Catholic theocracy. W.T. Cosgrave, the President, suggested that the Upper House, or Senate, of the Free State could be what he called a theological board which would decide whether any enactments of the Parliament were contrary to Roman Catholic faith and morals or not. While this proposal was a step too far and never enacted, the church and state became at times almost inseparable, and Cumann and Gael set about trying to implement what were Catholic social values in Irish society. Perhaps the biggest losers here were women. Arthur Griffith, a key shaper of the early Irish government, articulated what he saw the role of women in the new state as being. You will meet the ideal mother, modest, hospitable, religious, absorbed in her children and motherly duties. This vision left no room for the constant Markoviches of this world, or indeed the numerous other women who promoted an active role for women in society outside the home. Indeed, to fulfil Griffith's vision, Cumann and Gael soon began to reverse the gains made by women in the previous decade, and this was particularly the case when it came to sex and marriage. While the Church held that sex was something that could only take place after marriage, and was certainly not something to be talked about, let alone enjoyed. This was at odds with the realities of 1920s Ireland. In 1924, an interdepartmental committee of inquiry regarding venereal disease, in an unpublished report, stated, Venereal disease was widespread throughout the country, and it was disseminated largely by a class of girl who could not be regarded as a prostitute. Aside from the blatant sexism of the report that blamed women for the spread of sexually transmitted diseases, it showed that sex was clearly taking place outside of marriage. If this had not been the case, it would have almost been impossible to contract sexually transmitted diseases. For the state and the church, this was seen as a danger to authority and the nationalist vision of what womanhood was, essentially a homemaker. Through the mid-1920s, the state tried to gain control over this most intimate of behaviours, through effectively criminalising sex outside marriage. In 1927, the State Commission on the Destitute Poor referred to women who had given birth outside marriage for the first time as, and I quote, first-time offenders. While sexism and misogyny had been features of life prior to independence, the revolutionary period had raised hopes and expectations among some women that they would be treated more equally. Sadly, Common and Whale not only embraced these misogynistic attitudes, but fostered them. 
The criminalisation of sex outside marriage led to increased numbers of women who had had children outside of wedlock to suffer what was in effect incarceration in Magdalene laundries, institutions run by the church where they had to give up their children for adoption. Those single mothers who managed to hold on to their children were treated terribly, often shunned by society, ending up impoverished. Shockingly, this led to an infant mortality rate of 33% among children of single mothers. That's one in every three of these babies dying. This puritanical attitude towards sex was accompanied by deeply authoritarian attitudes to discussions around anything relating to the topic. In 1923, strict censorship in film was introduced and films which were regarded as, and I quote again, indecent, obscene or blasphemous or contrary to or subversive of public morality were banned. By 1929, censorship bills enabled the government to ban even the dissemination of material discussing birth control. During the debate on this topic, the authoritarian, anti-democratic attitude that was now enshrined in the government could be seen in the logic forwarded by James Fitzgerald Kennedy, the Minister for Justice, who said, In our, the government's views on contraception, we are perfectly clear and perfectly definite. We will not allow free discussion of this question. We have made up our minds that it is wrong. That conclusion is for us unalterable. We consider it to be a matter of grave importance. We have decided Call it dogmatically if you like, and I believe almost all persons in this country are in agreement with us that that question shall not be freely and openly discussed. That question shall not be advocated in any book or in any periodical which circulates in this country. The long-term ramifications of such authoritarian attitudes to sex fused with church morality created an environment where sex in any context was never discussed, something that had horrendous consequences. In 1930, when a judge, William Carrigan, headed a commission which investigated, amongst other things, sexual crimes in Ireland, he uncovered widespread sexual abuse of children. In the findings, known as the Carrigan Report, Owen Duffy, the Chief of Police, stated there had been 6,000 cases of abuse of people under 18 and some under 11 between 1927 and 1929. When it was circulated to politicians on December 2, 1931, the Department of Justice attached a cover note arguing against publication because it might not be wise to give currency to the damaging allegations made in Carrigan regarding the standard of morality in the country. The report was never published or acted upon. The long-term implications of this are really only being understood today as the true extent of child sex abuse emerges. As Fiona Kennedy, a researcher, stated in the year 2000, had this report been published, it may not have stopped all sex abuse, but certainly the culture of silence that allowed perpetrators abuse children for decades would have been lessened. This authoritarianism that flowed from the Civil War and shaped the first ten years of the Free State increasingly became a blueprint of how society would function into the future. In 1932, a faction of the Republican movement defeated in the Civil War, Fianna Fáil, won the election that year and replaced Common Noel as the governing party. In some respects, Fianna Fáil were different. They began large-scale housing programmes which would alleviate some of Dublin's worst housing problems in time. However, in terms of social policy, their transition was largely seamless as they continued with many of Common Noel's ideas. Indeed, it was Fianna Fáil who ensured the Carrigan Report, detailing child abuse, was not published or acted upon 
1937, it was they who enshrined the conservative view of women as second-class citizens when they drew up a new constitution for the Free State. Undoubtedly, Ireland's independence fell far short of the visions of many revolutionaries who aspired to a secular Irish Republic that treated all equally. The stifling culture that developed was best seen in how writers and artists were treated and how they themselves reacted. In 1923, for example, W.B. Yeats won the Nobel Prize for Literature, but the Catholic magazine, the Catholic Bulletin, dismissed the prize as a substantial sum provided by a deceased anti-Christian manufacturer of dynamite. Unsurprisingly, many writers followed the urban and rural poor into what was often a miserable emigration. This would prompt another Nobel laureate, Samuel Beckett, in his 1956 play All That Fall, to reflect, It is suicide to be abroad, but what is it to be at home? A lingering disillusion. Indeed, even as late as 1988, Philip Chevron from the Pogues in his song Thousands Are Sailing reflected about Ireland. Wherever we go, we celebrate the land that makes us refugees from fear of priests with empty plates, from guilt and weeping effigies. It may have been called a free state, but for many, it certainly was not fair. Ireland's journey towards independence did not end in 1922. Indeed, if anything, it was only the end of the beginning. I would be keen to hear your views on what is a pretty controversial topic. Let me know what you think by getting in touch at history at irishhistorypodcast.ie. That's history at irishhistorypodcast.ie. Until next time, Sloan. fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com